This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. The first draft of the groundbreaking Plastics Global Treaty, a new law to address plastic pollution, will be negotiated from the 11th to the 19th of November in this year. So this is a crucial step in the global fight against plastic pollution. But what does this actually mean for us? So today on the show, I'm going to discuss what the Plastics Global Treaty is all about and the major challenges that lie ahead in implementing such a significant treaty with Shantini Gunarajan. She is a policy lead at WWF Malaysia. She's on the line with me today. Welcome, Shantini. How are you today? Good afternoon, Juliet. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on this show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. Really excited to uh, talk to you uh, about this. So um, as I mentioned in the intro, yeah, the Global Plastics Treaty, right? Huge, huge thing. Really groundbreaking, as I mentioned. Uh, you know, for anyone who's unfamiliar with it, do you think you could share what some of the key objectives of the treaty are, you know, and how does it address the plastic pollution crisis? Absolutely. There's no better place to start than the objective. (laughs) So when the international community came together in March 2022, there was consensus to actually negotiate a new text, which is the Global Plastics Treaty. And the intended objective of scope was to end or to eliminate plastic pollution, including pollution in the marine realm, Mm -hmm. wherein it will also then protect the environment, protect human health through a comprehensive measure which adopts circular economy. So it's a mouthful. There's so many elements there. But at the heart of it, we know that the plastic pollution crisis is one which is transboundary in nature, not merely because the pollution, once it exists in nature, it knows no borders, it can travel from country to country without a passport, but It's also transboundary in nature because of the sheer nature of the production and consumption practices and patterns. The global plastics production, global plastic consumers, and we are the vectors that bring plastics from spot to spot. And we also have export and import in trade and so forth. So the treaty in itself would try to bring measures to address these through a range of control measures, either through banning certain items, phasing out certain items, phasing down certain items, bringing in harmonizing standards, all with the aim of trying to address plastic pollution through a holistic life cycle-based circular economy approach. Okay, all right. So I guess people will be wanting to know also the potential benefits of having a binding international treaty on plastic waste management. Do you think you could explain that for us? Yes, sure. So when we speak about international agreements, they they usually have two natures. Either they are voluntary in nature or they can be binding. When they are voluntary in nature, it encourages, it calls for countries to take steps towards doing something. So for example, I'm sure you're familiar with the Sustainable Development Goals. Mm -hmm. Those are voluntary in nature, right? So countries, they determine how they want to roll these out and they report on their progress, but it's not necessarily binding at the global level. But when a treaty is legally binding and it has measures or interventions in there, then countries would be held accountable, liable, and they have to then ensure that those obligations are transposed within the national landscape. So, for example, if I commit 
that I will reduce or ban certain plastic products mm. which are of high risk, for example. Then within the national context, I will then have to bring this down to the national level to make sure that within the plastics ecosystems in Malaysia, whether it's production, consumption, imports, exports, necessary regulation scientists. That's just an example. But if it's voluntary, then it is <laughs> yes. So there's no sort of um, accountability in that sense, right? When it's a, a non-binding agreement. No. And the risk is you will not achieve impact to scale. For example, Juliet, let me just share with you. Within the last five years with the glamour that plastic pollution has rendered, <laughs> there has been an increase in about by 60% in terms of interventions when it comes to addressing plastic pollution globally, 60% increase. And this is more of a qualitative increase in terms of how many interventions, actions, and sort of regulations that have been introduced. However, we are also still seeing and witnessing an increase in the rate of leakage of plastics into the environment. So quantitative interventions does not translate into scale of impact when it's volatile. The measures as they stand. So imagine if it's voluntary, right? Mm. Then it's even harder. And how does the treaty address the issues of microplastics in the environment and their impacts on wildlife? Okay, so Juliet, to start off, I'll just I'll just share with you again. So what has been released in September mm-hmm. is the zero draft. So okay. it's the genesis. It's the start of something which has structure, has form, has options in in terms of what the provisions may look like. So we don't have a definitive provision. So right now, there's some provisions, but some of it are in terms of option one, option two, option three. They range in terms of strength. Some are more restrictive, some are broader in nature. But this is the start text through which negotiations would be carried out. And there are elements or there are components within the zero draft in itself which has the potential and to, to address the issue of microplastics. Okay. In in the same way that it would also seek to address other types of plastics. And this comes back to when I was talking in during the in terms of the objective, how do we want to eliminate plastic pollution? Mm-hmm. It cannot just be based on waste management. It has to be a circular approach. Yeah. And then we're looking at elimination that is bans phase out mm-hmm. and that is the eventual ban but we transition towards a ban probably because there are no other substitutes or so forth or we phase down we reduce as much as possible where it is deemed unnecessary or where there are other com- composition of plastics that could be used so in in terms of microplastics now what we usually see is there are microplastics that are intentionally added into products for example some cosmetic products, you know, your facial scrubs, the, the, the micro beads and so forth. Yeah. So things like that. Can you live without them, Juliet? Can you? Yes, of course. <laughs> I already do. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. So globally, there are already several countries across the globe that have started to ban some forms of microplastics from being added into cosmetics. And we are seeing this trend pick up, So, which means it's not impossible. So these would be certain measures that could be introduced via the treaty where there is general consensus across the board that the use of microbeads or microplastics in, in, intentionally in type A, type B, type C in terms of use, whether it's cosmetics or whether it's in certain types of fishing gears, if it can, we can agree that we can eliminate or we can ban this, mm-hmm. then that would be stipulated in the treaty. And it would ease things because imagine right now, for example, Netherlands has banned it. But say if I am Malaysian, 
and I'm going to the Netherlands, but it's not, for instance, it's not banned here and I'm carrying it over to the Netherlands. Hmm. How difficult would that be for enforcement officers? How difficult would it be for implement, for conservationists or for conservation-based organizations or agencies to be able to track who is bringing in what, right? Yeah. So a global treaty will help in that sense of identifying what can be banned, what can be phased out, what can be phased down. And all these will be guided through science-based or evidence-based measures through consultative processes okay. throughout the negotiation process. Okay, okay. So so again, you know, we're at a stage where, you know, we're trying to get um, get this treaty, right, and get everything right in that sense, right? So we're going to be talking about things like how to address uh, plastic waste in marine ecosystems as well, right? Uh, and its impacts mm-hmm. on marine life. I mean, these are all the sorts of things that it's huge, lah, right? It's a really huge uh, treaty and there's so many different things that need to be considered. Would I be, would I be correct in saying that? Yeah, not a mammoth, but a blue whale. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's a blue whale. Effort. I mean, it's a huge, it's a, you're right, it's huge mm-hmm. because of the sheer complexity of plastics. It's not just yeah. it's not just a single dimension. You're looking at the entire life cycle from its birth mm. to its rebirth. So it's no longer from birth to death. In the past, this concept of cradle to grave was there where we want to sustainably manage something that is introduced into this into our living planet. Yes. <laughs> sustainably up to the point of disposal. So that is from birth to death or what they call cradle to grave. Mm. But now with circularity, it's more of a cradle to cradle. So it's birth to rebirth. So it's a that closed loop system is what we're working towards. And at every stage from birth to process to production to process to design, at every stage, there's going to be challenges or risks in terms of leakage into the environment or leakage of other sorts, mm. if not plastics in itself, right? Yeah. So, hence it's complex in that sense. Okay, okay. And for a country like Malaysia, right? Uh, and when we want to go back to that topic of circular economy, right? How would the treaty support the development of a circular economy for plastics, uh, specifically here in Malaysia? Excellent question. So, a circular economy is circular, it's a loop system. Mm -hmm. And I will circle back to the point I made about the (laughs) transboundary nature of our import exports and our plastics ecosystem. The Malaysian plastics industry in itself is dubbed, it's it's estimated to be worth about 30 billion ringgit, um, 30 billion ringgit, right? I I think ringgit, not dollars. Yeah, Juliet. So it's a very significant amount. And now if we only introduce measures for circularity within Malaysia. Let's just say, yeah, let's just say that if it's, uh, like we're talking about, again, a birth to rebirth concept, right? And and there is this concept called extended producer responsibility, which some industries are already voluntarily uh, implementing, wherein if I put out a bottle of a carbonated drink, along with the carbonated drink, Mm -hmm. I am going to find a way for me to collect it back within my system. Okay. Now, if the product is created, born within the Malaysian boundaries, then we can look into a system which works within Malaysia. Okay. But for us to be able to do that, there are several things that are that, that would be required across the supply chain. So it's the product design. The product must be designed in a way that the national ecosystem for recycling is able to to collect and recycle. So there is the production in itself. Then there is the collection system where there is needs to be a system for them to waste separate, to recover the bottle and then to feed it back through the recycling system and then feed it back into the rebirth process mm. or the cradle process. Okay. Now, with respect to 
plastic products that are going through an international plastics ecosystem, how would such a mechanism be achieved at scale across borders? Mm. You would need some sort of harmonized standard so that when I design a plastic bottle or a plastic product, I do not use certain types of chemicals or additives because chemicals and additives are part of the plastic production system so that it, it renders color, flexibility, strength to plastics. But some of these are detrimental in the sense that throughout the processing of plastics, it could release um, gases, it could release in emissions which are toxic. And even when it, if it breaks down in the environment, that is what breaks down into microplastics that could be harmful to human as well as wildlife. So if those sort of elements can be regulated or harmonized in terms of use, regardless of where these plastics end up, it can find a way to be reborn into the ecosystem. It can find its way back into feedstock, what we call as feedstock, mm -hmm. so that it comes back into the loop. So hence, harmonizing or stand harmonization of standards, setting of minimum recyclable content. So for example, if I am to put a plastic, I'm just using a plastic bottle as a very broad example here. Okay. Is it going to be 100% recyclable? Some plastic products are not recyclable in its entirety. So how do we increase the recyclability of plastic products, packaging, and so forth, right? So yeah. coming up with those minimum standards will help feed a circular economy globally. Okay, all right. Let's just go for a quick break, Shantani. When we come back, you know, I want to talk about the challenges, you know, of such a uh, blue whale-sized uh, treaty <laughs> that we need to achieve. I'm speaking today to Shantani Gunarajan. She's a policy leader at WWF Malaysia. We're talking about tackling plastic pollution, you know, and we're talking about the global treaty. Uh, we're breaking that down, what that means. We'll have more after this quick break. Keep it here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. On the line with me today, Shantini Gunarajan. She's a policy lead at WWF Malaysia. We're talking about plastic pollution today, tackling it more like uh, more precisely. And we're talking about what the Plastics Global Treaty is all about. Uh, it is going to be negotiated uh, this November 11th to the 19th, um, another part of it, actually. Uh, so we're talking about that. And we're talking about, you know, how important it is that we all come to a consensus on how to deal with plastic pollution. Um, you know, Shantini... Of course, there's going to be lots of challenges and obstacles, right, in uh, achieving this treaty, right? Um, could you explain some of the things that uh, are... Because, you know, it's, it's gone through many, many meetings already, right? This is one meeting uh, in the process of many. What are some of the challenges that have been, uh, you know, hampering, I suppose, uh, progress in, the, in, in achieving a treaty? Okay, so... There are over a hundred countries that are part of the negotiation <laughs> process. It's not you and me sitting down and hammering terms of a contract. Yep. It's a hundred over countries coming together with different demographies, different economic interests, different political, cultural views and values. So this is not unique to the plastics treaty development process, negotiation process. It's common to any international law de development in general. Mm. But what happens is the under the auspices of the United Nations, there are already mechanisms in place that have been set to facilitate these negotiations and to keep the momentum going. So, for instance, earlier I alluded to the March 22nd, which is when the United Nations Environment Assembly convened. Mm -hmm. And it was during that assembly where there was a unanimous consensus that a negotiation Association mandate was established by virtue of that mandate at the at the global level. 
the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee, which is where all these 100 over countries come together, was established. And what was determined at that point, Julia, is this. They have scheduled that at least five or I mean, up to five intergovernmental negotiating committees known as the INCs will convene during which they will shape and finalize the draft text. And between these, so these meetings happen every six months, but between the six month intervals, wherein the first one started in November, 2022, there are intersessional sessions so it's between INCs where technical experts, uh, country delegations, and even civil society, to some extent, they are invited to come, participate, provide written input. To, and in the past, so it was done with respect to identifying the elements of the treaty. So again, obviously, this is this this is an ongoing process. In trying to determine the scope earlier, you asked me a very important question about why is it important for it to be binding. Yeah. So this is one this one point that also keeps that which keeps emerging. Globally, there would be some parties who are more interested or invested in trying to make sure that there is as limited there's there's limited provisions that are binding as compared to okay. that which is voluntary in nature because it gives them more space to do what they wish with their economies or with their industries and so forth. And there could be other reasons for that. So there is a lot of push and pull and hence it's called a negotiation. Okay. But ultimately, what needs what we need to be mindful of is the reason the mandate was achieved or was um, agreed upon was to eliminate the problem of plastic pollution through a circular economy approach, whole life cycle approach for the betterment of the nature and people. So it is very, very important that the challenges will persist from a substantive point of view in trying to determine the extent of obligations that the treaty would uh, deliver in that sense. And secondly, a lot of negotiations or challenges would arise with respect to the implementation mechanism or the means of implementation. The heart of the treaty is actually the core obligations in terms of the scope. What do we how are we going to how are we going to address pollution? But the means of implementation are the key enablers. And these enablers are also some of the issues that traditionally we have seen the global north, the global south divided on on issues like finance, funding, who funds who funds the transition, who funds us transitioning from a linear to a circular plastics economy, who will help with the capacity building per se, who will help with technology transfer, how will the treaty address these issues? So the challenge is coming to a common page with respect to all these points, and hence that's why there are these INCs. The, the INC that's coming up in November is the third, and this is when the zero draft will be is already available for negotiation. So that's one process, Juliet. There's another process which is complementary to this. Okay. The decision-making process for this treaty in itself requires rules and procedures. How do these hundred over countries make a decision as to whether we, we agree on a provision, we don't agree on a provision, do we go to a vote? So there are rules and procedures that they also have to agree upon. What is the decision-making process in trying to develop this global treaty? So in the past INC, you would have re read news um, that was in media that couple of days out of the five very essential days actually ran into just determining procedures, not the substance. Yeah. So we actually had to allocate a lot of time I mean, the negotiators had to look at a lot of time trying to 
hammer rules and procedures. How do we make a decision rather than focusing on the nitty-gritty? How do we actually address the problem? They are both equally important, but sometimes these things can happen faster, but because of, as I said, geopolitical issues and also sovereignty issues that are raised and so forth, it, it, it takes time. Okay, yes, I do remember, you know, it was, I mean, because it, it boils down to how things are phrased as well, you know, the words used, things like that, isn't it? It's as complicated mm -hmm. as that. Absolutely. Okay, all right. Uh, so so there are many, many challenges. Um, I do also want to ask you about, you know, corporate responsibility and accountability in the plastics industry, right? Because they, of course, plays a, play a huge role in this. Uh, how does the Global Plastics Treaty hope to promote those sorts of things as well? Okay. Another very important question. So we're speaking about accountability. So state uh, state state accountability would be instituted through obligations. Mm -hmm. And this would in no doubt trickle down to the businesses and the industry. Yeah. For instance, if I if the core obligations are binding in terms of mandating certain bans, certain phase-outs, certain safe, um, circular ec economy transitions, and we're also looking at sustainable or um, safe and sustainable management of waste, mm -hmm. then it will definitely trickle down to the industries. And the other important part of this treaty that's also being negotiated, that's on the table, is with respect to certification, labeling, reporting, obligations. So creating greater transparency with respect to not just what your plastic is made out of, what constitutes the buildup of your plastic product, but also how it travels across its life cycle. Hmm. So how well is it feeding into the circular economy? How well is it managed at its end of life if it doesn't get re reborn? So back, back to fed back into the feedstock. So these measures are on the table, but it's again up for negotiations. And it's very, very important, especially when it comes to labeling, because the greater consumers, we have been fed with plastics throughout our lifestyle to yeah. the extent that we become so dependent on it right yeah and it's it's that convenience that has sold it because i mean it's sold it's sold it's completely we are bought by plastics we can't almost we almost can't live without plastics today mm -hmm. but if we are not able to discern how to handle these plastics how to deal with these plastics if they're not sufficient labeling then how do we handle them Right. So yeah. that's important. And if we can't report and monitor on progress, then accountability is voluntary. If it's voluntary reporting, how can you ensure that what is being reported is commensurate is with what is needed to be done? Mm. So hence, those components need to be included within the treaty as well. And it needs to be clearly stipulated as to what those commitments are. Now, we speak about businesses. Even there is actually a strong business coalition re representation during this this processes so okay. they are pre present as um observers they are present during the intersessional sessions they provide input into the process <clears throat> so which means they are also aware and invested in this process so that's one positive sign that we can take but um, we hope that there is greater reach across the businesses and corporate sector as well Okay. All right. And, you know, there will be, of course, some pushback, right? So I, I'm just curious to know also, um, you know, what measures are in place to ensure, you know, the participation and the commitment of all the nations to the treaties goals. Because we keep going back to the fact that it must be legally binding. It must be, I mean, it must be cohesive, but it must be binding, isn't it? Not, um, not voluntary mm. in that sense. Yes. So at the end of the day, Julian, it's about finding 
a good respectable balance between <laughs> voluntary and binding measures within a treaty so the treaty a, a piece of law should at its heart have the binding measures but it would also need to be complemented by voluntary measures because at the end of the day we need to recognize that there is something called national circumstances national abilities capabilities and so forth right so it's about finding that balance and when the treaty or the instrument recognizes or respects the balance between these two, it will actually provide means for attracting parties to actually be part of the process because it provides an avenue to effectively address the, the, the challenge, which is why I believe all these 100 over countries have been participating in this process. They agreed to the, to the resolution that was passed in 2022. Mm -hmm. And second, when there are voluntary measures, it gives them that leeway. But again, it has to be exercised with caution. Lah. I mean, when 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 we find this balance and any treaty, any good treaty which wants to enforce and achieve its objective would be, have built-in compliance mechanisms. Not all treaties are effective to that end, but that's so we have to learn from our predecessors where we have failed in environmental agreements in the past we shouldn't be repeating those mistakes lah mm, okay mm. so okay so we are i mean definitely they are trying to engage with countries that perhaps might be reluctant right to adopt these provisions i'm guessing you know incentives can be offered to encourage their participation as well that's what you were trying to allude to as well uh, so incentives in the sense is at the end of the day, at this point, uh -huh. okay, so at this point, it's a negotiation. Okay, okay. So, so it's yeah. everybody's game, can So yeah. at this point, it's a negotiation. So everybody is there and everybody is championing a particular provision or championing for the weakening of a particular language. or So everybody, or they're forming even alliances among themselves mm, or mm, mm. whichever it is. So that's happening now. But the fact that everybody is still at the table negotiating, so everybody's invested in the process. Okay. When this document is finalized and it becomes ready for <coughs> countries to sign on to, then it's a different then it's a different ball game altogether, right? So we want to recruit as many <laughs> signatories as possible when it comes on. But that is probably in 2025. I mean, hopefully that we keep up to the timeline that is there. Mm -hmm. So that's that's um, a, a day for itself later. So again, the treaty, when I say, in, when, when you say incentives or when I say a balance, it should meet the needs and it should, it, it, most importantly, it needs to meet the objectives. Okay. The objective of why we set out on this grand adventure and endeavor <laughs> is to meet the problem. So, that's the primary consideration. However, there is this notion of just transition, which yeah. is also very prevalent in the climate uh, negotiations. Correct. Yeah. To transition from linear to circular, we need to ensure that nobody gets left behind. So it's again your SDGs coming to play, like leaving the one behind. How do we ensure that every segment of society does not get left behind? And hence the mechanism for them to effectively progress towards the common objective is available, be it funding mechanisms, be it uh, capacity building, be it science-based information, um, science-based decision-making processes. So these are the enablers that I was talking about that would be crucial to even out the, the balance between obligations. So the, the treaty in itself will need to find that balance so that it meets as much as this word is overused, the win-win situation, right? So everybody yes. gets a piece of what they want in that. 
Okay. Okay. And, you know, coming from WWF Malaysia, right? I mean, what, what are some of your expectations regarding the involvement of civil society and grassroots organizations in the in the treaty's development and implementation? Okay, Julia, I'm going to ask you a very honest question. Tell me. How frequently have you heard about this, this process of a global plastics treaty within the Malaysian landscape, at least? Um... See, uh, hmm. doing the job I do quite frequently. (laughs) Okay, the Global Plastics Treaty, like it's being negotiated, it's being discussed actively. Uh, but see, uh, because again, with some of the organizations that I speak to for this job, then yes, I've heard, I've heard it being mentioned. Okay, uh, so like in media, yeah, but you don't see it as much in media. Correct. Correct. you, You see a lot about climate. You see a lot about deforestation, but when it comes to, or you see a lot of, about the UNFCCC, you see a lot of the Convention on Biological Diversity, but these negotiations, and there are a few other negotiations that has been happening, which don't get as much traction. But this is something that is pivotal, it's crucial, not just it for addressing plastic pollution globally, but it's significant to Malaysia because A, we are rich with biodiversity. Mm-hmm. We have a significant plastics economy. We have a society that has a high level of relationship <laughs> intimacy with plastic use. <laughs> so we have so many things to lose or to gain from this process. So if we are not actively feeding into the process, so actively engaging with our respective sectors, cross sectors with our government counterparts, to actually express our views, provide evidence to state how and why if and if a global treaty of sorts, certain global rules, harmonization, how would it help you? How would it help us as an individual, as society, as a sector, right? Because mm-hmm. it would bring about business efficiency when you have harmonized rules. Can you imagine if I'm running a business today and I'm at, say if I'm a small, medium enterprise and I have export, import interests, there's no global harmonized standards. And I want to import my export my products to say 10 countries. But out of that 10 countries, five countries have their own national regulations with respect to what can be brought in and can't be brought in. So I have to then figure out how do I then break my production to meet all those different standards. Wouldn't it just be easier if there was harmonized standards? Yes, 100%. <laughs> and but, but in order for those harmonized standards to apply in the long run, are there needs? Like, say, if the standards are harmonized to an extent where at the moment our recycling facilities are, are not able to take those designs Mm. then what is the need for so it's a whole it's a whole again it's the whole it's the whole system yeah we create the standards but then what would be the needs in terms of us to meet with the obligations that are being um, discussed so it's not about saying oh i don't have the infrastructure hence i i don't think we should support this but if it helps you achieve the ultimate goal then what would it take to enable the change what are the enablers that we need within our national ecosystem context, right? Yeah. So then that's what will feed and help, for example, our negotiators going into the negotiations. What would Malaysia need? I mean, A, how will this benefit? So as I said, from a health ecosystem, um, economy, all these perspectives, there's a lot of value. I mean, we believe there's a lot of value in a global treaty coming into force. And yeah. we would want to see those bans, those phase out, phase downs, and also we want to see sound management of waste where 
plastics do have to go to dye because they can't be reborn, that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. we want to see all these measures coming into play so that A, we don't substitute one problem with another. B, externalities can be avoided altogether if not minimized. But what would Malaysia need? What would Malaysians need? Malaysians need to help us get there. Is it technology? Is it funding? Is it capacity? So, and if yes, it may not be across the board for every single plastic use, plastic type, plastic product, plastic polymer. So that sort of information would be essential to be fed within the system. So we also then have an understanding of what's prevalent in terms of pollution within our ecosystem and what's breaking down within, say, tropical waters. So we have certain nuances that happen within our ecosystems, within our landscape. These information would be beneficial to be fed because it renders the viewpoint of this region, this demography, this landscape into the international negotiations. That, that, that's what would be essential across the different sectors, grassroots, CSOs, industries, you and I, that sort of thing. Okay. So, so okay, number one, get, you know, get the CSOs involved as well, uh, you know, from a country level as well. Those conversations need to happen as well. Yeah, you would say? Mm -hmm. Academics as well. Academics, yeah. Um, and and uh, are there any specific pers uh, provisions that you believe should be included, you know, from a WWF Malaysia point of view? Okay, so from a WWF Malaysia, so WWF Malaysia is part of the Greater WWF International as well. Yeah. So we all we have just released our um, technical brief as well as our high level brief with respect to what we hope to see coming out from this round of the negotiations, and it encompasses what has what has already been shared earlier with respect to the phase out phase down elimination standards when it comes to harmonizing standards for safe circular economy when it comes to safe and sound management so these provisions are core obligations which should be that should be it should be binding however again we would want this to be negotiated in a way where it is also evidence based mm -hmm. and it's also based on um, based on input from the key stakeholders right so but these are core elements that needs to be there needs to be binding we need to set those targets um, and we need to find a sound method when we set targets so for example when we say there's a carbon budget in the climate context is there a similar concept that can be adopted within the plastics um, mm. negotiations do we need a plastics budget so one of the potentially controversial provisions that is being discussed is sort of a it's similar to a plastics budget because at the end of the day, the problem lies in human behavior that is driven by unsustainable production and unsustainable consumption. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So if we were to set a budget, how would that look like? Right? Is is it possible? Is it feasible? Or would you say, no, 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 we should just allow our voracious consumption and production practices to continue? Because as long as you put it into a loop, it'll, find, it'll be fine. But... Mind you that circular econ the planet has a limit. Even if it is being fed back into a loop, overconsumption, even in a circular economy, there are emissions. So there would be trade-offs in terms of carbon emissions, other form of resource intense resource use. Because when you recycle, you produce, you, you are extracting other resources in that process, and you're also leaking other form of emissions or other form of releases into the environment. So we need to be mindful that the circular loop doesn't expand uncontrollably. So those are some of the elements on top of which we say the means of implementation is something that is absolutely essential. 
-hmm. We need to consider the developing states' interest, the small island states' interest, because more often than not, consuming nations, highly consuming nations of plastic products or product producing countries are benefiting economically, but the environmental risk and health harms are felt by the most marginalized. So we would want to see elements that enable just transition would also be incorporated through, among others, funding mechanisms that are meaningful, capacity building, technology transfer. So if we are going to say that this is the best method of recycling plastics. This is the best way of sound waste management. Is that going to be then protected by IP and no one's going to have access to that technology and then it's going to burden a nation even further? And as it is, we are also already having landfills that are over capacity. So will those technologies be available? So these are things within which the, the treaty will also need to address. So both the means of implementation as well as the core obligations are very, very important. Okay, so work is definitely cut out for, you know, everyone involved in the process. Um, yeah. But, you know, for, for anyone who's listening, right, you know, and just wondering, you know, how can they contribute as well, right? How would you say we can, you know, all, all of us here in Malaysia contribute to the success of the Global Plastics Treaty? I would say for starters, uh, uh, keep if this is an area that you're interested in, well, if, if you're not, if you are interested in, if you're not trying to get interested in it, because it would affect you at some point, yep. try to keep track because the United Nations website continuously updates the relevant information documents are made available. And there are a lot of CSOs or NGOs who are also continuously providing information. So keep track on the progress. At the national level, your focal interest ministry is the Ministry of Natural Resource, Environment and Climate Change. Mm -hmm. And they are active active in the negotiations so feel free to funnel i mean i'm making this announcement <laughs> as if i'm no i'm just saying that you know we as citizens have a right to actually write in and say hey i think that this is important right yeah. uh, so that's something that we can do also find like uh so in the lead up to the 2022 resolution wwf ran a series of uh, public dialogues and we were soliciting input and we were creating platforms for discussions so Anyone can do this. I mean, it doesn't have to be WWF, right? So creating that, these platforms to ask, for example, do we need a plastics budget? Can you live without, I mean, can you live with, within the realms of a plastic truck? Plastic so coming up with, with this discourse to make people more aware, because this this level of awareness is slightly higher or much, much, much higher in other areas. So how can we create that awareness with, with respect to what's happening and how this would impact us? That's something that needs to happen. Okay. And, that is how we collectively can contribute towards this process. If you are part of coalitions, great. Get yourself accredited under the UN so you can also participate in these processes. As You can register as an observer and participate in these processes because when you do go for these negotiations, I think this year um, that I know of, Friends of the Earth Malaysia, Sahabat Alam Malaysia will be actually sending a representative from the CSO side. Mm -hmm. So you can actually see what's happening behind closed doors, how negotiations are proceeding, what's happening and so forth. So that's also in a way important because there are a lot of side discussions that happen yeah. which are enriching. So there's so many ways in which we can participate. Um, but when the opportunity is presented to provide feedback and comment, we should do that. Because in this process, every few months, there is actually an opportunity to provide feedback with respect to how Malaysia should shape her position. So when Malaysia is trying to shape her position, we as stakeholders have the right to express whether from the academic side, from the conservation side, from the business side, this is this is the case for Malaysia or for my sector and as a whole. And then hopefully it will also enable um, broader discussions to 
come to fruition. Okay. Okay. So, you know, I mean, we, we do know that, I mean, this is, again, you know, just to, to keep... Um, Bounding on the fact that it's a really, really important treaty, you know, and there's going to be like a lot of long term outcomes and benefits, right, that the treaty will have, uh, not just for us, but for the environment, wildlife, human health, uh, not just here, but globally as well, right? Um, anything that you want to highlight, you know, why we really, really, really need to uh, yeah, prioritize this, you know, it's up there with the climate crisis, it's up there with the biodiverse, uh, biodiversity crisis as well. Uh, anything you'd like to add to that? It's all interconnected. Mm. It's all interconnected. So the they always say that the triple threat, the triple planetary crisis, pollution, uh, loss of biodiversity, climate change. At some point, they all have common denominators or they're all interconnected. For example, when plastics break down into microplastics or when plastics impact ecosystems, you encounter biodiversity loss. You potentially also encounter collapse in ecological functions. Although the extent to which the wrath that plastic pollution can create on ecosystems and our health is still largely unknown, mm. do we want to wait for the moment when we are at our most vulnerable to try and grapple and come back up? I mean, actually, we're already very vulnerable with climate change, with the triple crisis. So, <laughs> So it, it is all largely interconnected. And, and with, with plastic pollution coming, it's more being more rampant. What's also happening is there's a lot of discussion along the waste to energy, waste to energy discussion where we are saying that, oh, maybe we can also uh, burn plastic waste and we can generate energy from it. But I think there's also, I, I just came out from a just transition, a just energy transition conference that was held by Friends of the Earth Malaysia mm. in with collaboration with Third World Network this last two days. And someone just flagged to say that, you know, there's the uh, Global Anti-Incinerator uh, Incineration Alliance. And for every ton of plastics that is burnt, the amount of emissions that is released is also quite high. So again, it's all interconnected. You can't think that I'm going to wipe out the plastic problem through, say, incineration if it's going to lead to another problem. Mm. So a global treaty would help us put these things into perspective so that we don't have 100 different people doing 100 different things without, with no means of monitoring impact, no means of um, assessing how far are we towards achieving it, um, achieving our goals and actually um, ultimately addressing the problem. So, it's it's within that context, if I make sense. No, no, totally, totally. So, okay, all right. Well, there's a lot there. <laughs> um, yeah, <Chantini. laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, 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 not at all, not at all. You know, I think, uh, yeah, you know, any sort of awareness we do about this is very, very important. Um, I, I, I know, I, I, you know, you asked me that question earlier and I do ask some of my colleagues, hey, have you ever heard about the Global Plastics Treaty? They're like, uh, no, what's this now? You know, like another environment thing that I'm throwing on them, but it's really, really crucial uh, as we can see. So, um, yeah, let's let's see what happens with the negotiation and what happens next. Yeah, so I will definitely be in touch. Um, but you know, we're just running out of bit, uh, running out of time, Shantini. But you know, any concluding messages that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I would say Earth matters. <laughs> we matter. <laughs> so, as much as plastics have become integral to our daily lives, mm -hmm. we owe it to ourselves to share the responsibility and to take action. Of course, we have the daily, the daily, you know, every individual takes the action with respect to be, being mindful with respect to your plastic footprint or any environmental footprint in general. Mm -hmm. But of course, there is a greater responsibility that, that, that is also present in participating in decision-making processes. 
only if we collectively come together, we can collectively contribute towards this magnanimous, this amazing opportunity that has been presented to us that is the Global Plastics Treaty. Mm-hmm. Okay. Shantini, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Thank you so much, Juliet, for having me. And let's all strive for a future where we all can live in harmony with nature. Thank you. I was speaking to Shantini Gunarajan, a policy lead at WWF Malaysia, talking to us about plastic pollution and the Global Treaty. If you'd like to keep updated with WWF's work, you can always head to their website. That's at www.wwf.org.my or you can follow them on their social media. They're on uh, X, Facebook, Instagram, uh, all of the all of the usual suspects. But if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash earth. You can also find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on the Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.